0: Here in the midst of this sermon series on the greatest of these from 1 Corinthians, we dive into a story about Nathanael from the beginning of the book of John. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, the one about whom the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And Nathanael replied, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see, says Philip. And when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael asked, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, You believed because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree, but you will see greater things than that. Please pray with me. Holy God, may the words of our mouth, my mouth and the meditations of all of our tender hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to make this claim that the Bible is an anthology of love. It is a treasure trove of stories that point us how to live a life of love. Biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann says that Scripture is not so much a collection of ancient documents, but is our partner in the ongoing dialogue about how to live life here and now. The Bible is this apothecary of belonging, a place we can visit, or maybe, as New Testament scholar N.T. Wright suggests, the Bible is the book that assures us that we are the people of God when again and again we are tempted to doubt. So on a week like this, where wars and rumors of wars again fissure and fracture, Scripture becomes for us the book of tears and laughter, the book through which God resonates with our pain and our joy and enables us to resonate with the pain and joy of God. 1 Corinthians, then, is not just a definition of love, but instead is a story of love, or maybe a multiplicity of stories, if we just open our ears. Stories come to us when we hear, I speak in the tongues of humans, and if I speak in the tongues of angels but have not love, then I am just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable and keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Maybe at first glance it sounds like an urging about love, some philosophical treatise about love, but really it's a story And this story is tethered to so many other stories, one story tethered to another. Paul describes love, but what he's trying to tell his friends in Corinth is that love is like Christ. He is pointing to the cruciform leadership of Jesus, where Jesus places The life of his friends over and above his own and self-sacrifice for the sake of justice emerges out of a sense of love. Love exactly mirrors the life of Jesus. And so here it is again, the trail of one story leading to another. It's all somehow interwoven. Love rejoices never in injustice, but always in truth. And so love is rejoicing. Love is joy. This little word rejoicing from verse 6 only happens twice in its exact form in the New Testament besides this one little spot here in 1 Corinthians. First of all, Jesus uses it to describe a wedding day kind of rejoicing. It's that kind of deep, abiding, full body, clear, resounding, wholehearted joy that you experience at a wedding. Jesus says, the swell of the music, the catch in your throat, the instinctive tear, the goosebumps, the ritual, the blessing, it is all a kind of rejoicing. And so this text that we accidentally or maybe purposefully uh, use at weddings is actually hitched to Jesus' image and understanding of a wedding joy. And the story points to another story. Again, the second time that we hear this word rejoice come out of Jesus' mouth, it is a parabolic kind of joy, one that we know so well when Jesus says that it is the sheep who is found and that has been lost and is now found, and there is rejoicing. When a father or a mother finally finds the lost son or daughter, there is a kind of rejoicing when they return home. This is the kind of rejoicing that is love. Love is a kind of joy. Love does not find joy in iniquity or injustice or in wrongdoing. When someone trips up or makes a mistake, love cannot rejoice. Love only reject, only rejects injustice and rejoices in the truth. Jesus, too, finds this kind of rejoicing, this kind of love in the story that unfolds with Nathanael. He calls Nathanael the one in whom there is no guile. And so it's kind of like this. If the Gospel of John were a movie, It would begin like a Star Wars film. Christmas Eve's familiar words scrolling to set the scene. In the beginning was the word. And the theme music would follow the cascading camera angles and you would see a man by a river inviting others into the river with him as some kind of sacred ritual. And maybe... You would be led to believe just for a moment that this man was the main character of the story. And out come a few more men, this time dressed in formal religious gowns. They do not go forward for this sacred ritual in the river. They look authoritative and a tense but unheard conversation ensues. The next day, the man is back out by the river and this time someone comes forward into the river for this ritual, and something different happens. What looks like a bird, a dove maybe, comes down on this man's shoulders. Whatever it is, something is different. This man is important. The artistry of cinematic genius now makes clear that this man is the central character of the story. An evening comes, and morning again, and a crowd forms around this man and onlookers mumble something unheard, and he replies, come and see. And the next day, the two are joined by a third, follow me. And then the focus widens and the story slows down a pace, and the third follower goes to receive a fourth to recruit Nathaniel, but he balks. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? We don't need to know specifics to understand what he means. A question like that conjures up our own prejudices. We know places like this, whether from our childhood or from today, that would evoke this same kind of tone, the same kind of question. Not that anyone here has any prejudices. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Nathaniel's decisively skeptical with a little bit of hesitation, but he goes anyway. He prejudges and he can't hide it. He wears his heart on his sleeve, but his friend says, come and see, echoing those same words from our main character, come and see. And so our main character, the one on whom the dove has descended, meets Nathaniel and all the narrative pressures begin to bubble up to the surface. Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. And suddenly we're taken back to another story, a story within a story, because of course the word guile conjures up the idea of craftiness and cunning and schemes and tricks and Jacob, before his name changed to Israel, is the great trickster. He tricks his brother out of his birthright. He tricks his uncle out of his livestock. You might even say that it is his crafty, sly approach that gets him to squeeze a blessing out of the one who comes to him to wrestle him at night. But in Nathaniel, all is different. There is no falsehood. There is no deceit. Nathaniel is someone you can trust. He is not cunning. There are no tricks. He's an honest man. There is no false bone in his body. A man of integrity, a truth teller, genuine through and through. Love rejoices in Nathaniel. Love rejoices in truth. Makoto Fujimara is an artist. He didn't grow up as a Christian, and so he's got a little bit of an interesting tale to tell, but the Spirit of God rose up in his midst, in the midst of his art, and so he became a Christian, nonetheless. And he just published this book called Art and Faith, and I was intrigued. It's endorsed both by the biblical scholar N.T. Wright and Martin Scorsese. You don't see that every day, and so I felt like I needed to read this book. Two decades ago, Fujimura was living in New York City, and on 9-11, he was trapped underground on a subway, trying to make it home as the towers crumbled above him. His train backtracked to 14th Street, right by St. Vincent's Hospital, where doctors and nurses waited for the wounded. When he emerged from the subway, he could not see the towers because of the smoke. And the days, and soon after, his artwork became defined by a before and an after. He could not create in the way he had before, after 9-11. At the behest of a soul friend of his, Fujimura began to read T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. The friend thought that maybe T.S. Eliot might become for him a guide through the tumbling trauma and uncertainty that he faced. T.S. Eliot wrote this slim volume of poems from war-ridden Great Britain in the 1940s. And as Fujimura explains it, Eliot was an air raid warden during the Blitz and fully experienced the dark shadow of those days. T.S. Eliot himself needed a guide through this impossible season. And so he, and now we're story within a story, within a story, within a story, T.S. Eliot turned to the poetry of Dante and to the apophatic theology of St. John of the Cross and to the late quartets of Beethoven as his guide through his own dark time. So with Dante and T.S. Eliot by his side, Fujimura journeyed down into the darker woods where the way was wholly lost. Fujimura asks us to read T.S. Eliot and picture him trapped underground on the subway on that perfect blue sky New York City day in which for him and the world, the way was wholly lost but there's always a story within a story. And so he also asks us to read T.S. Eliot and picture his own maternal grandfather living in Japan at the time, who was asked by the Japanese officials to go and survey the wasteland that was Hiroshima in the weeks and months that followed the bomb. And so maybe we follow his invitation along the way and we read T.S. Eliot and think of your own dark woods or of the dark woods of the news unfolding in our own world where the path is obscured and the way forward seems forgotten. In the numbing silence after trauma, T.S. Eliot's voice was as close to the truth as Fujimura could get. He felt a kind of absence from God but somehow poetry led the way. He writes, "O oh dark, o oh dark, o oh dark, they all go into the dark. So the darkness shall be the light and the stillness the dancing." He wrote this T.S. Eliot did while the air raids were happening. Part of this poem is on the front of today's bulletin. And in a sermon series about love, we can easily say, yeah, 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 I get it, love, love. I know, I know, I've read 1 Corinthians 13, I get it. But somehow, today at least, for me, what T.S. Eliot writes from within the shelterless storm of an air raid is uh, is that we need to be uneasy about what we love, uneasy about how we love, about how we choose to love, because love the wrong thing, and love can turn your world upside down. False love can change everything. Knowing what love is not might just be as important as knowing what love is. Love does not rejoice over injustice, but rejoices in the truth. Amen.